Thanks for tuning in to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast on the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and on this show, you'll hear hunting tactics, stories, and strategies from hunters across the South. Our aim is to sharpen our skills as hunters and outdoorsmen, become more efficient and effective in pursuit of our craft, and even have a little fun while we're at it. And of course, no matter the pursuit, we focus on doing things the Southern way. All right, joining me for this week's episode of the Southern Way Hunting Podcast. Once again, I've got Mr. Mark Haslam. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate you having me back on. Absolutely. It's kind of odd to say welcome back to the show because uh, you're going to be taking this show over. So I probably should introduce you as the host of the Southern Way Hunting Podcast at this point. So uh, that's exciting, man. It is. It is. I, I, I greatly appreciate this opportunity, Josh. Um, I'm looking forward to taking over and trying to continue the success this podcast has had. Yeah, man, I can't think of a better person. You know, when it comes to... Oh, I'm sure you can. No, no I mean, <laughs> honestly, I, if I'm thinking about a guy who hunts the South with a lot of success, a guy who understands deer and deer management, uh, a guy who um, maybe rises above a little bit, a lot of the zinger talking points that are out there, if that makes sense. Uh, we kind of just talked about a few of those off air. You know, what are the what are the zingers, the, you know two ways you're going to kill a buck this fall kind of conversations. Right. And we all want to have those. Those are definitely important. Um, but at the same time, you're not a guy that gets too caught up in, in a lot of that. And you'll talk about them, those strategies and how effective they are. But at the same time, you've also got a background in, you know, deer management and you understand the science behind why deer do what they do in a lot of ways. And so, uh, I'm excited. And you also understand hunting culture at a very, very deep level. And, and when I say hunting culture, I mean southern hunting culture from a historical perspective. I'm saying you understand it holistically. Like you get that guy on the public land. You also get the guy on the private land on the lease. You also get the guy who's got a 40-acre farm he's trying to manage and do the best he can on. Like you've got a broad range of, of, of perspective there. But then also, man, just the like one of the things that stands out to me about you is your success in, you know, off-the-wall times. Like, in the morning, in the early season. Like that to me is like, okay, this guy gets deer hunting. If you can kill a mature buck in the South, in the morning, in the early season, like my hat's off to you, man. Like I, I got a ton of respect for you because that can be a struggle for sure. It, yeah, it can. And I think, I think sometimes, um, and I was guilty of it too, um, uh, before we started put some, putting some, um, trying to connect some dots, but ultimately it comes down to it's a, it's going to sound stupid, but it's a prey predator relationship. You know, they're trying to live most time of year. They're just eating and hiding. And then for a couple months they go into, you know, a breeding cycle, different things happen, rut kicks in, bucks act, acting differently than usual. That's it. And they just eat and hide and they're trying to stay alive. So yeah, we were talking off air about different ways that, you know, bucks feed and it's, um, I heard something, um, uh, I was listening to, um, the Mississippi state deer university podcast and Bronson Strickland. I'd heard Bronson Strickland use this analogy before about bucks talk about, you know, you know, cause some people like to deep dive on how bucks feed and where they're going to feed first. And he uses, use this analogy of, you know, let's say, Josh, what's your favorite meal to eat? Let's, what's your favorite meal? Oh, we just got to go with steak and potatoes, man. Okay. That's what I, in his example, he's the ribeye. So that's usually a, so let's say it's a steak. Okay. So would you, Josh, would you walk a um, hundred yards to eat a steak? Yeah, I'd do probably that. would. Yep. Okay. So let's bump it to, would you walk five miles to eat the same steak or 10 steps over? I've got a nice Philly cheese steak sandwich. I'll settle or, for I'll settle for or, the sandwich. Or ham sandwich, right. Yeah, so you get a ham sandwich or, you know, a mile down the road, you get that steak. So it's just that, yeah, there might be beans down the road, but that buck is going to get up and he's going to eat over here for a little bit. And he might make his way down there, but it, it's just that it, it's they're trying to stay alive. I mean, they're the one of the ultimate survivors. And, you know, also they they statistically have to eat so much, you know, six to eight percent of the body weight. 
So they're not going to just eat under that magic candy, you know, ice cream tree. They're going to eat here. They're going to eat there. And then they're eventually going to make it to that one, to that one site. Right. So yeah, it's, it's just, um, you know, deer, I think ultimately they are working around us. They are working around pressure and, um, and they're trying to stay alive. Right, man. You just brought up an interesting question. So they've got to eat. You said six to eight percent of of their body weight, basically. Like they've got to eat a lot of food. Um, I hear a lot, and, and this is this is you know kind of the the aggressive hunting style nerding out that I want to do just real quick. Um, I hear a lot about hey, you know, if you want to find where bucks are bedding, get into those high stem count kinds of areas, and. Uh, as you and I both know, not all hen- not all high stem count areas are created equally. Mm-hmm. Um, some are high stem count, and it's just not it's not good cover to be to be quite honest with you. How important for you? And this is a conversation I've had with a lot of people. How important do you think it is for a buck to be bedding in a place where he's got quality browse? I'm not saying within a hundred yards. I'm saying within five yards, ten yards, like all around him. How important is that? to the locations that he's going to choose, assuming that pressure is, you know, pretty evenly spread out. I don't think it's really as important. I think it's a good bonus. If there's some good, I think it's an extra bonus, but I think, um, I think safety. Um, and I've read that. I've read that before. Um, yeah, I, I, in my opinion, I think safety is a number and safety right. doesn't mean that you've got, a thousand yards surrounding you of cover. I mean, safety might mean up against the highway on a thicket. It's just, it's just, we're really the humans aren't and maybe, you know, a, a stray dog or any kind of predator coyote, maybe you could just easily sneak into, but, and everything else is just bonus. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. I, I like that point you just made about, you know, we, we might need to <clears throat> think about security and safety a little bit different. And, you know, this is my, you know, I do a lot of, pu- of public land hunting as well. And, you know, guys want to go, well, I've got to get two or three miles deep before I can get to where a buck's going to be bedding. Um, we've got to think about security different than that because um, there are too many examples of bucks doing crazy things, bedding in crazy areas, locations where it's like, boy, that was the safest place on the spot. So, um, yeah. for instance, I was on a property this past week in South Carolina doing some consulting and, um, you know, talking with the client beforehand, it's kind of like, okay, what do you want to see this property become? And what came up was, hey, I think we've got an opportunity for some depth of cover here to the back of my property, which he does. He's absolutely correct. We should establish some bedding back there. The best buck bed we found on the property all day long was right up against his yard. And it was a huge (laughs) matted down buck bed, rubs all around it. And that buck was bedded in the safest place there. He was keeping tabs on this gentleman who owned a home there and the other homes in that area, keeping tabs on that. He's keeping tabs on where the does were bedding. And anytime anybody accessed that property from the access route, which there was only one going in, one going out, anytime someone came through there, that buck knew exactly when you were there. He knew exactly you're coming and going. And so security doesn't necessarily mean furthest away from humans. It means safest from humans. You know, and we got to, that's right. We got to adjust that uh, a little bit. All I mean, you do consulting too. Depth of cover is important, right? We don't want to be bumping them every time if it's on our farm, right? Yeah, that, that, that's one of the drawbacks of, um, of, um, of doing, um, edge feathering. So let's say you've got a food plot and it could be a little kill plot, you know, quarter acre, or it could be a big, massive kind of feed almost like, I mean, a field size, you start doing edge feathering, you've got some briars, thickets, whatever. You might not get bucks, maybe during the rut, you get bucks bedding on top of the field, but you'll, you'll get doe groups. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I did, I shot a little short little video showing, showcasing one of our food plots, big old briar patch, matted down area. What's going to happen? They, they are, if your stand is not concealed, if you can't slip into it, they're going to be, they're going to see you coming and going and they're not going to step out. So it, it's, it's, um, you're right, man. It, it's deer, deer are very smart. I don't think they're old, you know, old, high, you know, old, ultimate intelligence, but they're smart. 
and they, I mean, they've been here a lot longer than we have. So yeah, man, uh, they, they're gonna, they're gonna find every nook and cranny to, um, especially bucks. Right. Right. Especially bucks, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, for me, that's where I've made a lot of my, uh, a lot of my living in the hunting space is, um, you know, finding those overlooked places that are kind of off the wall, finding those nooks and crannies, like you're saying, of pockets yeah. of deer that I don't necessarily have to walk two miles to get to. So, uh, man, we got, I, I got two topics that I wanted to run by you today, and Let's I shared it. them with you earlier, but folks need to know I did not prime or prep you with any of these questions. Like, these are, these are totally, uh-huh. totally fresh, but there are two topics that I did tell you about. The first one is baiting. And the second one is postseason scouting. I think both are really relevant this time of year. Your season oh, just yeah. ended. Uh, I've got some some hunting left to do. That first ten days of February is going to be prime for me. Um, but you know, here in Georgia, uh, where where people are still hunting right now, at least until this weekend, um, right now where people are betting is one of those times of year where you're probably seeing a lot of deer starting to show back up to your bait locations in daylight hours. You know, there was probably a lull in the middle of the season that perfectly corresponded with the amount of pressure you were putting on the property. Uh, but now you're starting to see them there back in daylight hours. And so, uh, and then I also saw a post, I think it was yesterday from the MSU Deer Lab that talked about, um, you know, a recent study where they're showing like, hey, in, in these CWD areas, like there's no doubt that baiting supplemental feeding has an impact on how quickly that can spread. And I think that that's hmm. really important. I think, I think, Oh yeah. I, I think that we need to take that into account. I think we need to be careful with how we talk about it, not only from a culture perspective, because baiting has been big in the South for a long time, but also just, we want to make sound management decisions. So tell me a little bit about your, your perception of, of baiting and maybe run down some of the pros and cons because, um, we do bait on our property. We don't bait a ton. Um, and we, we've kind of gone, we've ebbed and flowed. You know, we've had it to where basically most of the year they've got some bait out there. Uh, we've also got supplemental feed, you know, out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, or then other parts of the year uh, or other, other seasons where we just haven't done much at all. We've relied on different things. And so I'm curious just to hear your thoughts on it and maybe some pros and cons. That I'm going to pick off all the little, uh, you know, side questions that kind of come up. Yeah, you know, um, Josh, baiting is, is is such a hot topic. And, you know, if you're if you're from the South, you're probably familiar with it and you probably don't have a problem with it for the most part. I think a lot of Southerners don't because it's been legal for many states for so long. Um, I know Georgia has changed and Alabama's changed their rules. It used to be you couldn't do it, and then it used to be the feeder could only be so far from the stand and out of line of sight and all the little Yeah, yeah. you can't see it, but it's there. <laughs> you can hear it spinning, but you can't, right, you can't right. see the corn type thing. But um and a lot of non Southerners just and you know, a lot of people think outside of the South, we all hunt in condo blinds. We're watching TV. We got feeders out, and we just you know shoot them. We're, it's not really hunting, and it, it, it's all really subjective. But my this is this is how I explain it to people that maybe aren't from the South. Um, like take for instance South Carolina. That's a state that I know pretty well as far as hunting, and it's had one of the it's the longest deer season in North America, and has been since I've been a kid. And baiting's been legal since I've been a kid, and we still have a robust deer population. So those laws aren't in place to make it easier for you. Now, it is it is very um, helpful for the state to have liberal season limits to try to pump some, you know, you know, uh, help the economy. South Carolina is a very rural state, but they're not they're not doing it to make it easier for the hunter. They're doing it because they need more people to kill deer. And I, I think some people lose sight and not to go off on a different tangent, but, you know, we've taken out a lot of predators, the same predators that were, that were on the landscape hundreds, a couple hundred years ago, aren't there anymore. And with our expansion of development, deer are pushed in certain pockets and this and that. So we have to regulate them. Mm-hmm. So, 
where I'm getting it is like an area where I am in South Carolina, base, I mean, the low country, anywhere on the southern half of South Carolina, Columbia down, there's some tremendously large deer densities. Mm-hmm. And if you're not running, I think using some type of bait, you're probably not going to be able to kill the deer that you possibly ought to based on your density because at a certain point food plots are going to turn nocturnal because yeah you, you can only kill so many deer on a food plot before they kind of figure it out and h- hunting different 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 tactics i mean it, it is a necessity for some people with those with, with those densities the problem one problem is that people don't ever really learn how to hunt right and you know I, I mean, I was guilty of this back in the day. You know, you set up a stand, kind of, kind of where you want the stand. I, I just, you know, this this looks cool. There, there's an oak tree there, and um, I have no idea where, where the deer are coming from. Put the stand here, put a feeder over there, and then it, it may work or it may not. And, and you don't really learn how to hunt them. So that's definitely a drawback. And if you're solely hunting over bait, corn piles, it will become detrimental because you can only, just like a food plot, you can only kill so many deer on daylight hours under a feeder or a corn pile. They're going to catch on to it. So I think it's a good tool in the toolbox, so to speak, like people talk about, you know, manage. I mean, I look at it as far as management. I mean, I know people talk about corn piles, like, oh, well, you know, that Bucky shot was over a corn pile mark. I'm sure it was. So that's really kind of cheating. And it's like, no, I don't really like hunting it that way. But for us to, for us to regulate our does, we absolutely use corn and we need to. Right. Um, so I think that's, and, and there's some different ways to, you know, but it, it's, I, um, it, it, it can become detrimental, I think, for someone if they're solely just basing the entire hunt strategy over feeders. Right. They're not going to get the most out of other land. Right. And I've, I've seen a lot of times, you know, especially those, those big stationary feeders that are always there, you know, those become pressured very, very quickly. Um, if you're a little bit more mobile, let's say, I mean, it, you're not truly mobile, but I mean, if you're, you get into the season and then you find a location, you know, uh, let's say it's December and you're like, okay, I'm going to start baiting here now. Well, that can become a pretty good spot if you haven't been pressuring the heck out of it. But I'm curious about what you have seen or have you seen, um, what I have seen in, even in my own backyard here where deer begin to associate corn and feeders with danger Kind of no matter, kind of no matter where it's at. Like it doesn't matter if you've ever hunted that spot. What matters is that there's corn and a feeder there. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. I may have shared a story last week, but we'll get into that here in just a second. So I'm curious on your thoughts. Absolutely, Josh. I mean, I've seen it firsthand where you've got um, a food plot, whatever's out there, deer like it, and then there's a corn pile off to the side. And some people will put you know corn on top of a of a food plot. And I don't think that's necessary for a couple of reasons, but yeah, I've seen deer skip that corn and go to something that maybe, um, and, and, and a lot of that comes down to preference in the deer, but when you put out corn, there's also that element of, is it a corn pile? If it's corn pile, you're going out more often. If it's a feeder, you're still going out more often. And it's that extra layer. It's just like when people talk about trail cameras, you know, how often you're checking trail cameras. Now, a lot of times these days, people have cell cameras. But if you're routinely filling up feeders and that and your presence is there, going back to what we talked about a minute ago, Josh, if, if you've got deer that are bedding down, bedding close to feed sites, which we know is happening, one, you and I are seeing it and other hunters listening to this are seeing it, but also we have GPS research to look at, deer will be down close, then they're seeing you interact with that feeder, with that trail camera. So it it it, it, it absolutely can become detrimental. Then there's another element that it's, you know, a lot of people have feeders. Some people put out corn. Well, when the corn's not there, what are deer going to do? So let's say there's a, you got a feed site, whatever it is. And you got deer coming to it, but you're out of town or, or it's empty. 
They go to it. What are they going to do then? They're going to go somewhere else to eat. Well, the next day, are they going to go back and try that corn? I mean, it 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 it's uh, it creates an irregular, uh, a irregular behavior in their movements, and how quickly they're going to pick up on it. And you're also shifting their natural movement. So, but at the same time, just like you, Josh, we do some, we do private consulting. And there's a lot of times I talk to people that, that, that are in hunt clubs. And if you're on a lease, you can't do much. You can't cut down a tree. You can't light a fire. And what a lot of times what people can do are feeders. Right. So that's kind of what they have. And if they can't manipulate the timber and open it up and have feed a lot of times, and that's why, you know, sometimes supplemental protein pellets are are a good option, Mm -hmm. but you've got to be careful about it. Before we phased out feeders myself, and I've worked with different landowners, is just, just because you have feeders doesn't mean you have to hunt over them. Right. You start shooting over, I mean, this really changes the dynamic. They're still going to come to it. But what I found is some of those deer won't. Mm-hmm. You know, you start shooting over a food plot, they'll still come to it, and, and, they'll, and they'll figure you out. But feeders, there is something. I mean, everyone's seen those photos of a big trough feeder, you know, mm-hmm. like a big trough feeder, like, you know, and there's and there's booners in there diving into it, you know, or one of those Texas-style shoot feeders where there's tubes coming down, there's booners sticking their heads in there. It's, it's, it's like what we talked about earlier, everything's subjective. Mm-hmm. But in my experience, when you've got real hunting pressure on your property, your neighbor's property, a buck is not going to do that. Except I think it, it can work when you introduce some and it's a generational thing. When that button buck grows up, that spike grows up, and, they, and they're seeing their mama eat out of it, they'll start eat out of it. But we hunt over them. Before we got rid of them, we, we, we moved them off to deer stands, and they were on the property, but we didn't shoot over them. And I think that can help tremendously because deer, deer browse, mm-hmm. and they're not going to go to one little – they're not going to go to one food plot and eat until they're full and then go back to bed. They're, they're going to they're bounce around. Right. So having some feeders or some feed sites set up that you don't hunt over, that can be good to have, kind of create some movement. Get them up, moving, especially in a, in a spot where they're not being pressured. Right. Um, but then a lot of people and some biologists will say, well, that can create predators. You know, Um uh, like if you had some birds coming into it, like let, let's say you had turkeys coming into it or quail, you might start to have some predators that are honing in on that prey species other than hunters that are coming in and watching said game animal eat. Um, but the same thing can be said for food plots. Right, right. Yeah, I, I really like what you what you talked about there with, you know, feeders that you really don't hunt over. They're not intended to be hunted mm-hmm. over. Uh, we, we do that a lot with some of our, our designs and plans for folks. I'm sure you're doing some of the same thing. If folks are interested in having a feeder, we'll say, Hey, if if you're, if you want to be feeding, you know, here's a long stretch of travel that we'd like to see here. Two things on either side of it. We'd like to bring some definition to the middle of this line of movement. Pretty good way of accomplishing that is popping a feeder in the middle of that. And, and, you know, if you're, if you're hunting it, you have to expect there's going to be some differences, you know, in that in that deer behavior. But if you're not hunting it, you can kind of rely on that. The problem that starts to come in is, okay, that's another 30 minutes of that deer's daylight time. And so you've got to adjust the hunting strategy around that a little bit as opposed to if there was not really much along the path for him. But um, I had a, a feed. Did I tell you about our feeder in the backyard here? Uh-uh. All right. So we don't have a big chunk of ground, but we do have deer on it here. Um where I live. We have, um, you know, corn in the backyard. My kids like to watch the deer from our second story window. We've got a really nice view over some really brushy stuff in our backyard. Then we've got taller pines. And then just on the other side of the taller pines is kind of a pretty well-managed bedding location, right? Just real thick cover growing up, head height, brush, grass, Mm -hmm. briars, um, you know, all the pokeweed you could possibly want. A lot of good species out in there. Uh, and the deer bed in there like crazy. We can watch them stand up out of their beds, work their way through the pines, and into our corn. About two weeks into the Georgia rifle season, maybe three weeks, we uh, we had this group of deer that we'd watch every day. They stand up out of their, you know, out of their bed. They come to our corn, and they kind of transition through this little spot between the the neighborhoods here. 
um, we stopped seeing a lot of the deer visit the feeders. And the one that we did have coming in one afternoon was a little buck, a little button buck. He took 20 minutes to work his way into that feeder, stopping, <laughs> looking. Yeah. He'd take a couple steps, he'd stop and look. We have never hunted in our yard here, right? right? We, we do not hunt, even though we could, we don't hunt in the yard. Uh, there was actually a buck here this past year that made me think about it a little bit, but, but we didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't hunt it. So he had been exposed to negative pressure somewhere in this, on a surrounding property of a feeder and he associated feeders now with danger. Um, and now all of a sudden he's hesitant to come in. So I think it can, if you're, if you are hunting on them, you can have a negative impact, not just on that specific spot, but even on feeders that you're not hunting. Like you can begin Absolutely. to change the way they relate yeah. to those. And I mean, if a button buck's going to pick up on it, I'm relatively certain that four-year-old that you're after is going to pick up on it as well. Hey, absolutely, Josh, because that button buck probably saw, I mean, probably saw his mother, you know, um, act a certain way. And then it mimics that. Yeah, it, it, it's um, for sure. I, I mean, I, I, I lean towards that uh, just, just pouring corn out right. is a better – ideally the better option than a feeder than mm-hmm. something just, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb, but then the consistency of getting the corn out, right. You know, it's, so it's, it's, it's much more convenient to have a feeder, but yeah, it's, um, they pick up on it. Yep. They, they, they certainly do very quick. And, 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 and one last point, I've always seen a big, uh, adjustment that you, you know, you can run, the best kind of protein feed, whatever corn, whatever mixture, um, and they'll be in the, and they will hammer it this time of year. But when that um, when the green up really matures, and that uh, that early successional growth becomes really good tender, or there's ag production, they're going they're going to switch, yep. and you'll see a big dip in your feeders. Um, then when hunting pressure comes along, depending on how people hunt, they can you can pick back up right. for sure. Yep. So I want to run something by you that I hear a lot of folks say, if I don't feed deer on my property, I won't have any deer. The neighbors will have them all. So the assumption is that if the neighbor has three corn piles on his property, then all the deer vacate my property and never come here anymore. Um, What do you, what do you think about that? I would ask them where, where do they bed? do you have bedding on your property? And, and, uh, I mean, going back, what we've been talking about earlier is the, is the, is the security. I mean, they, they've got a, in my opinion, um, and I've read this from biologists to their opinion too, but safety is number one is, is, you know, they'll, so, um, I mean, that's what I tell people, like if they have like 70 acres, 50 acres, I I would be the best, I would have the best kind of bedding you can and the food, try to have some, but I'd have the bedding because ultimately they're going to be coming back to it. Um, but yeah, it, it can, man. It, 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 um, they can pull deer off, but, um, you know, sometimes you can use your neighbor's hunting style, uh, to your advantage. Right. And that's another reason why to kind of get to know your neighbor. You don't have to, you know, break bread with them every night, but just get to kind of know how they hunt. And then you can use that to your advantage um, to try to, you know, um, have less pressure, have better bedding, whatever it is. Right. So if a guy does say, hey, look, I have a lease, um, you know, baiting is going to have to be part of it. I can't even plant food plots except for maybe a couple of loading decks. How would you recommend if he does want to hunt this bait? And he's like, I, I do want to hunt it. How would you recommend he craft a hunting strategy around his, you know, feeders or corn piles? I would probably have the feeders and corn piles and probably some really tight spots. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like to have feeders um, – I like to have them so the deer can vanish within about, you know, a couple bounds, you know, two or three bounds, they're gone. They can be out. Deer like to see, you know, you don't, you don't want a too tight and tight spot. Deer like to be able to see around them. 
see danger coming in, but then not being out. I mean, some people, and I'm sure you've seen a Josh where people put a feeder right in the middle, just right in the dead center of like a five acre field. Yeah. You know, and yep. it's like, I get it. You want the best possible shots and want to see them coming a mile away. And if you put it back in the corner of the field, it's getting dark and you can't see them. But it, going back to what I talked about a minute ago, you got to think how, what the deer, what they prefer. It's not what the hunter, you can't tee up a shot for the hunter. You got to think. So I, I like to put feeders, um, suggest putting them in a, in a tight spot where they can see around them, but they can be, they can, they can vanish next to a thicket. They can just shoot off somewhere. If it's a, if it's a coyote, I mean, really any kind of predator is going to either be a wild dog or a coyote or a human for the most part. And so if it's, if it's on top of a thicket, most of those predators, they're not going to be obviously chasing them in that. So something like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's shift topics now to, to topic number two. Um, season has ended there for you in South Carolina. Season will end here in Georgia on, uh, I believe it's Saturday is the, no, Sunday is the last day uh, where I'm at. And so, um, you know, seasons are coming to a close. It's time to get out. It's time to strap on the boots and find out what we missed this season, whether uh, on our own property or whether we're on public land or whatever. It's a good time of year to get out and figure out, okay, the deer that gave you the slip, what were they doing? Was there something unexpected where, you know, how were they avoiding you? How were they avoiding other hunting pressure? Um, What does that postseason scouting process look like for you? And when does it start? And and I want to hear this from a perspective of, man, you've got a lot of history with the ground that you're on right now. um, And you know it pretty well. So what does that postseason scouting look like for you at this point? Yeah, yeah, Josh, I I started some of that – I do most of my scouting by doing, doing other things. So right now um, we're doing some, thankfully our loggers just showed up Tuesday. So they are, they are cutting trees right now. And it's been way too long before we had loggers back on the property, got that going, but I'm also helping other landowners uh, with forestry type work and setting up hunt setup. So when you're doing that kind of stuff, I'm walking the woods right now. I'm flagging off areas to cut this and that. I'm scouting. This time, if you're in the south, you've got, um, shoot, uh, two more months. I mean, sometime like mid-March, that green up starts. And once it starts, the woods just close back in. So right now, trails, game trails should be popping right now. should be, well, definitive. Um, it's been raining a lot. Things are muddy. You can see those trails. This is how I learn where to hunt for the next year. Right. Seeing these trails, seeing where they're coming, coming and going from, finding rubs. Um, and also, when you walk your property, if you're not walking your property every year, you're probably missing out because you're seeing areas that you thought was a sanctuary, mm-hmm. you know. And this is my sanctuary. It's this block of my property. Well, walk it because if it doesn't have what your deer need, are they really using it? Right. Just because you're not in there doesn't. You see how your land changes because in the South, we've got such a long growing season. Things change all the time. So walk it. Um, and then my other part of the scouting is I look at this. I look at the previous deer season and think about what worked and what didn't work, meaning food plots, which food plots worked. And, you know, I had, I mean, every year I've got some that don't, didn't, didn't, didn't work. Why didn't it work? Well, the, the beans never came to maturity. Well, why not? Was it because I planted it wrong? Timing, uh, depth, was it the deer? You know, do the deer wipe them out? If you don't have a seclusion cage, you don't know those kind of things. So people should be asking themselves, why didn't things work? I I, I talk about, I, I mentioned it before, um, on, on my, um, I mentioned before, um, not, not on this podcast, but I was, cons- I was consulting with this private hunt club, really good hunt club, great land, and they had a, a full-time manager you know, planning and doing all the stuff. And he has, um, he was drilling in soybeans, um, grain drill 
that sounds great, right? Right. They can't really plan a whole lot. It's, it's, it's a lease. It's a timber lease. They got the hunting rights, blah, blah, blah. Well, he was going this grain drill, just drilling in beans during the growing season, you know, spring, summer, throughout the fall until first frost. The deer wipe them out, little, you know, little sprouts. Then he's like, well, Mark, I just go back and drill in more. <laughs> and that's drill. And I'm just keeping it going. I, I had to, and he, you know, he was my senior by, I think 30 years. So I was trying to be polite about it, but like that's a colossal waste of money. Right. I mean, you might as well just dump your, all that cash in a dumpster and light on fire. Right. Cause it's, it's, it's that kind of stuff. What's working. That's not working at all. So maybe if the food plots aren't working and the too much deer browse, maybe you plant something else. Like I've been planting a lot of sun hemp for a lot of years, mm-hmm. sun hemp, or I'll do a mixture with different varieties uh, for other species, kind of where deer like it, but it's not, they're not going to hammer it like beans. Right. So what worked, what didn't work. Um, and that's, you know, as far as scouting, I run, I've gotten to where I run trail cameras, um, basically not during the hunting season. And I know everyone's got their thing, but I, I, I went, I went through, there's, Two main reasons. One reason is because you get bucks on trail camera and then I obsess about them. And I'm trying to kill that one buck because I named him. You know, I, I gave him a really cool wrestler name. You know, <laughs> I, I named one Ravishing Rick Rude. Had on camera for multiple years, like three years. I saw him in person, I think, once. I, I never killed him. I, I don't know what happened to him. But you obsess about him. Of a one time, of one buck. And then you have guests you invite up, or maybe it's hunting club members. And they're waiting for that buck. But, you know, we've, you know, I mean, MSU just has this great publication out about buck movement. The buck that you get on camera during the summer, he might be, he, he might shift his range. So he, he's never even right. on your property. So um, I tend not to run cameras during the season. I want, I want people to shoot does when they see them. And I like to hunt. I, I like to, you know, make my own hunt as far as buck hunting. And then, so running cameras, I'm doing it right now. I'm seeing what I got on the landscape. I'm, I'm seeing the bucks I got left. I'm seeing doe numbers. And then I'll do it throughout the year. Um, and quite frankly, you had mentioned killing early season bucks. I kill a lot of early season bucks from scouting right now because a lot of times I found where bucks are right now, because they're forming back up in bachelor groups. The testosterone is dropping, uh, you know, the final estrus does or, you know, you know, being bred or falling out of estrus. And so they're forming back up in bachelor groups for safety. And they're going to probably be in the exact same bachelor groups and pretty much those same areas when the season starts. Right. Right. So that, that's, that's another way yeah. I, I'm doing scouting right now. Yeah. How important for you, um, is some of the buck sign that you're finding right now. I mean, I, I see you post pictures and stuff where it's like giant rubs on a magnolia, which is awesome. Love that. Um, how see Im- that? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. do you see those a lot too? Or you, am know, I- you know, I have, so on our, on our farm uh, down in Mobile County, Alabama, so way mm-hmm. down south, right? Coastal deer, sandy soils. We've got some magnolias, but they never get rubbed on. Um, our, our small pines, though, just get ravaged um and maybe it's we just don't have enough magnolias we've got a bunch in kind of the front um maybe five acres or so not really any in the back where we typically have more buck activity um so i haven't seen it but man the the ones that i've seen on your property has been amazing i love that i i would love to see some kind of research i mean i've heard people talk about like tree sap and they uh, you know, the sap gets on them and they can spread, you know, because very social animals on other trees and magnolias have a very sweet scent to it. It's right. just, it's right. curious. So now, sorry to I will say ask. if, if, if you find an Eastern red cedar on, on our place, it's been rubbed like no question. A hundred percent of the time it has huh. been rubbed. Our biggest, most aggressive are our year to year rubs. Mm-hmm. Those are typically on a small cedar. Um, for us, but uh, how important is this year's buck sign for you to next year? Because I know the you know the rut can be a bit crazy. Um, so how how much weight are you putting on some of that sign? And are there different maybe levels of rut sign for you where you're like, hey, this is important to me for year to year. 
But this stuff over here, not so much. You mean scouting bucks on right throughout right. the year? Yep. Well, th- this time of year specifically, you know, in in the postseason. Um. Okay. So there's two things that come out of my mind about you know postseason buck sign. One would be I'm paying attention to it to try to pick up some sheds and a couple in starting next month in February. Our antlers starting to fall in February. You know, it'll drift into March. If I see some buck sign fresh, I'm going to key onto it um, and then go back later looking for antlers. I don't really usually find too many. Um, and then going back to where they are right now, they're probably going to be there early season. Right. Um, right. But, you know, I've had people ask me one time, you know, like what, what, what size track, buck track really gets you going? You know, they, people talk about four fingers or five fingers wide or, and I, I look at bucks a little bit differently um, that, um, you know, bucks are going to be, bucks are, bucks are going to be on the landscape. If you're letting young bucks walk, you're not shooting them, letting them get some age, they're going to be on the landscape. And they're, I really focus more on the doe groups and just trying to get the best safety and cover and try to, you know, pack, pack everything I can in about 200 to 300 acres, you know, blocks, give them everything they need, every little 200 acres for safety, water, food, the bucks are going to be there. Right. They're, they're, they're going to be there too. And if you're hunting during the rut, you're really doing more for the does. The bucks are going to be in there. And I don't really obsess about creating buck beds um, anything right. really specific. And I, and I know that's probably goes against what a lot of people think when they're trying to kill bucks, but I, I, I've always kind of thought, I think people think they overthink killing bucks right. and they overthink, um, you know, how to monitor them. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good, I think it's a really good move when it comes to like, uh, scrapes and whatnot, you know, those, those scrapes that are still hanging around that we saw in, uh, in November. So I was actually, I was on a property last weekend in South Carolina. Um, there were th- several of the scrapes, the, the bigger ones, right? Like the ones that I, okay. Are you looking around? It's like, all right, this is in a, this is in a terrain feature, still getting a lot of traffic. You know, the smaller scrapes have kind of disappeared. They're covered over with leaves, but there are a handful that are just still getting hammered, you know, oh, like, yeah. like still getting, you know, they were wet that morning, you know, as we're walking the ground. How important are those kind of perennial scrapes for you as far as your hunting and hunting strategy? Or are you kind of just like, eh, it's just good to know they were here. doesn't really play into what you're going to do next year. I, it's good to know that they're there like that, like that big rub I posted that that's, that was made this fall. Um, we didn't kill a large buck that would fit that description on our property. It was close to the property border. I know that neighbor. I don't think they did. Um, it lets me know that there's a big buck in that area, um, which if he's a big buck, like what we know from research, their home ranges typically shrink year after year. So he, sh- that should be, that should be in his home range. Um, as far as scrapes, I, I've never really been one to hunt scrapes. I put trail cameras there. I mean, every data that you see on scrapes, they typically are hit at night. And this time of year, yeah, I, I took some photos of some big scrapes th- this week in the woods. I, 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 from what I've seen and talking with people that manage land and other land managers, it's, it's the young bucks. They're, they're, they're just still hitting them. They're hitting the scrapes. But um yeah, I, I've never done mock scrapes. That that kind of stuff just tells me they're there. Right, right. And yeah. and, it, and it tells me that that property, whether it's my property or someone that you or I are consulting on, that they've got bucks there. Right. And that's the first step. And then you can manipulate ways of getting in front of them to kill them. Um, but, yeah, man, if you walk a property and you're not seeing that kind of stuff – you need to change some things. And that should tell them right. that tells you and me that they need to be doing some different things to promote buck activity. Yeah. So 
one thing I want to run past you. So last year I was consulting on a property. I haven't run into this. Actually, I did run into this down in South Georgia. Um, but that was a, that was a thousand acre property. So big property. Last year I was on 150 acres in North Georgia up in the mountains. Uh, this year I was on a property in South Georgia. The one in North Georgia last year, I did not find a single scrape on the property the entire time that I was there walking this property. The one down in South Georgia, thousand acres, walked miles and miles and miles and miles. We found a handful of scrapes, just very, very few. What does that tell you? And, and you walk through the food plots, tracks everywhere. They can't grow anything because it, there are too many deer. Um, what does that tell you about that property and what you can learn to set your up, yourself up better for the following year? Yeah, that's a good question, Josh. I um, I would probably try to figure out where they're primarily bedding and how they're getting to those food plots. Right. Um, I would also, that's interesting because my first thought would be maybe they have a very low density and they're not, maybe they have a low density and maybe they don't have a good age structure. So people, you know, every now and then I'll hear someone that's not really, maybe from the South um, or it's not really a big whitetail hunter. And they'll say, well, Josh, why, what's, what's the importance of QDM? What, what's the benefit of letting them walk? I mean, what difference does it make if you shoot them at one or six? And with that, with, when you have those age structure, you, you see stuff like that. You, you see more rubs, you see more scrapes, there's more communication and deer are social animals and that's what they do. So you really, that promotes a much healthier herd. So my first thought would probably be a low density or maybe not, not a lot of older bucks or really not that many does. Right. But if you're telling me that their food plots are being wiped out, I don't know. I mean, maybe they're not, I, I, that would probably get subjective as far as maybe getting some boots in the ground, on that property, but yes, yeah, something's off. Right. Something's off because you really, I guess from my, I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking right now that I would say there's gotta be a direct correlation between bedding and thickets, mm. places to hide places, right. the deer bed an increased number of signposts, right. Rubs and scrapes. Right. There's gotta be. Yeah. No, that's really good. So I asked you that question and cause I, we kind of figured out the answer on both properties with pretty intensive trail camera surveys. So mm -hmm. the one from last year, um, we knew we didn't have any bedding on the property. Uh, we, we also knew we had very, very little food on the property. I'm walking this property and, and literally American Holly is being browsed all around me. So, <laughs> and this is, this is February. So it's like, yeah. I get it. There's no food here, but man, if American Holly is being browsed, you got a, you got a problem. You yeah, know, it's not when, very digestible. No, I mean, not, it's, it's, not at it, all. It's a low. It's yeah, <laughs> that is not good. So we we knew, but we put out cameras, very, very few bucks. Not great deer density, but very, very few older age class bucks, like the occasional one might pass through. The property in South Georgia, deer everywhere, all mm -hmm. over the place. Tons and tons and tons of does and very, very young bucks. I don't think we've, I haven't spoken with the landowner in a couple weeks uh, or in, in about a week at this point. But in that thousand acres, and we've got 10 cameras spread out kind of throughout the property. Um, ideally, we're going to beef that up and get a few more out there. But um, we had zero, what I would consider like a good mature buck on the property. Um, lots of young bucks, lots of one-year-olds, handful of two-year-olds, but does coming out of our noses. I mean, just all over the place. Um, so in, interesting to see, like what what can contribute to that? I think the common thing between both is that lower age class. And you're talking oh, about yeah. that age structure. Yeah. You know, if you don't have a lot of two and three and four and five and older bucks, you don't have the competition between the deer that you would normally have, and you just don't have the sign making that you would normally have. Absolutely. And like one little quick hunting tactic uh, point to add into it, if what you just described, if that's where you're hunting, rattling is not going to be worth any, it's not going to be worth your time. Right. Rattling works, but it works in good areas that have solid herd structure, uh, a good buck to their ratio. If you're not rattling that property you described and you're, you're not, yeah, it, it's not going to be beneficial. Right. At all. Right. And that's one of the first things we're talking about is like, okay, how many does do we need to take off of this property 
this coming fall because we know it's a it's a whole bunch. Uh, you know, thousand acres of just you know full of deer, but but nothing that we are really looking for. So, uh, Mark, anything else in the postseason scouting? We're we're coming up to about fifty minutes here, so we'll start to kind of wrap it up. Anything else come to mind about? postseason scouting or even our earlier topic of baiting or anything anything on your mind right now no uh no i think we covered just about anything i mean you know right now i think yeah i mean besides postseason scouting people should be looking at um um looking at what they killed what they saw uh maybe what they need to change i mean you know some people we go aggressive or we have been aggressive on our deer our doe quota numbers but at a certain point we will probably scale that back i mean every year is gonna be different think about that and um and be thinking about i, I would if you're a landowner or you, or you have a hunting leasing plant food plots be, be thinking right now get a budget going Think about what you want to plant, when you want to plant it, so you don't get behind the eight ball and you're not, it's not May or, you know, early fall. Um, but yeah, I, I would just get some boots on the ground, get out there and scout public land, private land, see what you can. I, I, um, I learn, I do most of my scouting this time of year. Um, and because you're seeing what the deer were doing this past season. Right. And then I don't even really do much during the season for the most part. Right. Right. Totally get it. Totally get it. So, all right, folks, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Mark, thank you for joining me. Uh, Moving forward, you're going to be hearing a lot more from this guy. So uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to uh, be part of this podcast for the time that I was able to uh, step away to focus on a couple of other projects. You guys are going to be in great hands with Mr. Mark Haslam moving forward. So, Mark, thanks for joining me for the show today, and uh, we'll keep in touch, buddy. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, please go subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you can leave us a review, I would really appreciate that. Until next week, let's keep doing things the Southern way.